Christmas, Stone Creek. Love some Christmas. You know, silent night. All is calm. Silent. Serene. Peaceful. Sounds exactly like my experience of Christmas. What about you? <laughs> if there's one C word to describe our Christmas, mine, and I'm certain yours, it would be the C word, chaos. Come on, somebody. Like that, yeah, and it's a good chaos. We love chaos. Chaos is great. But just think about the chaos that we experience at Christmas. Now, usually the chaos starts at Thanksgiving because some of you believe you can't put out Christmas decorations until Thanksgiving, right? How many of you Thanksgiving folks we got out there, right? Handfoot, they call you Scrooge. But moving on, like this year though, decorations got put out earlier because we were so burned from last year. Like I, some people started putting them out at Halloween, man. If I'm honest, we started in July, like real Christians. Like we just, we started putting direct decorations out and that's what we all do, right? We roll some decorations out. It may be lights. Um, it could be a tree. It could be different things outside, inside. And that's just part of the chaos. It's all things you pull out of places in your house that you didn't know existed. And then you find all these things that you've thrown in there over the course of the year you need to get rid of. And it's just, more chaos and then you go out go all the places you want to go you go out having people over for dinner maybe go to Starbucks get your favorite drink with all that mint pumped into it, and you wait four hours in line just because it feels like Christmas hey but there's nothing that screams Christmas chaos like shopping hello right how many of you went to the Avalon yesterday my gosh I think all of us were there like I'm thinking it's COVID nobody's going to be there Bang, wrong answer it was wild at the Avalon, but shopping is, is crazy. And then you think, oh, I'm going to avoid the chaos. I'm just going to shop online. That's just so much easier. And then what, what happens? You overspend and you create chaos in your budget is what happens. And that's not coming for you till January. It's just all this chaos. And think about our favorite Christmas movies. They all begin with chaos, don't they? Think about your favorite Christmas movie. Christmas Vacation fans in the house. Come on, somebody. You can't admit that in church. I know it's bad. But think about this one, Home Alone. Home Alone, everybody. Okay, okay. So think, think about this for a second. Home Alone came out in 1990. Like I was four, you weren't. <laughs> but think about the opening scene to Home Alone. You got the McAllister's house. It is the hub for the vacation that's about to happen. Relatives are coming in from all over the country so they can fly to Paris for their Christmas vacation. Kids are running all around the house, up and down the stairs, in the kitchen, out of the kitchen. And then the pizza man shows up and he needs his $120 for those pizzas. And he can't seem to find an adult in the house. And then Joe Pesci shows up and walks in and he's looking around, dressed up, right, in a police uniform. And he's just looking around saying, is, are your parents home? Are your parents home? And, ever, and all of them are like, no, our, our parents don't even live here. Like, we don't even know what's going on here. And he's just folding his hands and thinking to himself, this is going to be my year. And then it happens. Kevin doesn't get a piece of cheese pizza. And him and Buzz get into it. And the milk gets spilled. And Fuller's already had four cans of Pepsi. And now Kevin has got to spend the night in the attic with Fuller, who's going to wet the bed. And it's just chaos. And it doesn't stop there, does it? <clears throat> it moves on to the next morning when they oversleep and they wake up knowing they're going to miss their flight on vacation. And so they began scrambling, running around, looks like my house and we're leaving for vacation, suitcases and packing. And they all run out of the house. They jump in the vans and they do that mad dash through the airport. And finally they get on the plane and they fall comfortably in their seats. And in their chaos, they forgot Kevin. And in our chaos, we could forget 
the king who came at Christmas. You see, the chaos that we experience isn't new. It started with the very first Christmas. You see, the Jews in that culture in 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day, they were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a king. They'd expected a king for generations, for thousands of years, and he hadn't come yet. So they were a little bit despondent. They, they, days had gotten dark. They thought God had forgotten them. They were like, well, where are you, God? Why aren't you here? And then in the blink of an eye, he shows up. And what appeared to be chaos throughout history, chaos throughout generations, chaos in the cosmos, actually turned about to be this mosaic that God was painting for our lives. And what we want to do today is just to be able to look at some of the pieces of the mosaic that God used to bring about the birth of our king. And so I've got up here nine different pieces to the mosaic. And I know what you're thinking. Thinking, Stephen, nine is a lot. How are you going to do that in the allotted time? <laughs> I'm a professional. Trust me. So in Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going to pick up the particular story for today. In Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, obviously Matthew is an eyewitness to the account and the birth of Jesus. And he's writing from this Jewish perspective. And it says this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's a piece of the mosaic, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east, wise men, they'll be part of it. They came saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, another piece of the mosaic, when it rose and we have come to worship him. And when Herod, another piece of the mosaic, the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And they assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, come tell me, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. Although he didn't really want to worship him, he wanted to kill him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then they opened their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And so the first piece that we see, the first piece of this mosaic that we should look at are the promises of God that a king was coming. That God actually promised. And so I have here as part of that first mosaic a scroll because God promised through what we call prophecy. And so God had given many promises throughout the years about how the king would come and when the king would come and where the king would come. And so as the king begins to come, these prophecies all begin to come true. Now, now pro these pro promises of God actually are exactly what the gift would be and where it would show up. 
Now, we go about it a little differently. Like, we want the recipient to tell you what the gift's going to be. Like, we make lists for gifts, don't we? We'll write a letter to Santa Claus. Anybody doing that this year? <laughs> write a letter to Santa Claus. Or we'll have an Amazon wish list. That's the new version of a Santa Claus letter. Um, like, some of you may not want to be so forward. So what you'll do is you'll maybe have a magazine with what you want. to. You'll leave it lying on the coffee table or on the kitchen table. So when you get that new Yeti magazine, you always keep it. And you just kind of put it out with that item that you want. Or maybe you just give hints. You'll be walking through a store and you'll say, oh, I really want that Ferrari. Could you get that to me for Christmas? You know, <laughs> like we have a list of things we want. But, but also we know when we get up tomorrow where the gifts are going to be, don't we? It's not an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> we know. Now, for some people, like when I grew up, one of the things that we did is we had this formal dining room. The doors were closed off and we would have some gifts in there and they wouldn't be wrapped but for my kids, I want them to have to work hard. So we wrap all their gifts and we have them under the tree. So tomorrow morning, our family will go down and we'll go under the tree right where the gift, where I know the gift is going to be. And you see, God promised some of these gifts. I just want to look at three of the promises that came true. In the book of Micah, Micah is an older prophet who wrote some promises. He says this, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. In other words, that city is so small, they don't even get named. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So, so God promises that the king of the world is going to be born in Bethlehem. Pretty specific, I would say. The next one, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now we'll cover that a little bit more in detail, but, but, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem, ends up in Egypt before he goes back home to Nazareth. And God promised it. A third one says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know to be the Virgin Mary who gave birth to Jesus. Now those are some pretty specific, pretty specific prophecies. Now, I don't know about you, but like if I'm ambiguous at all about my ability to come through, I'm hedging my bets. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little more vague about the answer. Like I'm not calling cue ball. I'm not calling eight ball in the corner pocket unless I'm like six inches away. I mean, but God seems to stack the deck against himself. Just to put in perspective with the odds of just a few of these prophecies happening, specifically eight prophecies, just to, just to put this in perspective, the odds of you being struck by lightning are one in 700,000. Aren't you glad you knew that today? <laughs> A little, a, little, uh, a little negative, but um, the odds of you being elected president, one in 10 million. And you're like, I wouldn't take that for $10 million, probably. Man, the odds of you actually uh, winning the lottery, one in 200 million. Hey, if you do win the lottery, by the way, 10% Stone Creek Church, right? That's how that goes. Man, I mean, the odds of a meteorite landing on your house, 180 trillion, probably not going to happen. The odds of eight prophecies, eight promises coming true, one in 10 octillion, 27 zeros. A guy named Peter Stoner, love that name, actually wrote this, studied this, developed this. And God, in all his wisdom, all his sovereignty, was able to go through history making promises about where and when and how and who the child would be. This is a pretty important piece of the mosaic, just the promises of God. 
You know, what happened after all these promises, though, was that God was silent. Didn't say anything. Didn't offer any more promises. Didn't seem to be coming through. Didn't seem to be answering prayer. Man, didn't seem to be doing anything. And and if we're honest, all of us in the room would say we've experienced that. If we have any category for God at all, will be those times when, God, where were you? Hey, God, why didn't you show up? God, why did this still happen? And if we're not careful, what will happen is we'll take matters into our own hands when it seems like God is silent. It reminds me of a time when I was a kid. I was six years old, and at our house, you couldn't get up for Christmas and Christmas gifts until 6.30. I mean, the sun was going down at that point. It was so late. And so I woke up when I was six, and it's four in the morning. And I took matters into my own hands. I snuck into my mom's room, and I set that clock ahead from four o'clock to 630. I'm brilliant. (laughs) So we we all go in the kitchen, kind of get ready, me and my mom and dad and my sister. And my sister was more brillianter than I was. She looks up at a clock. There happens to be a clock, you may not know this, on the stove in the kitchen. Because I didn't. And she says, it's 4 o'clock. I'm like, it's not 4 o'clock. It's mom's clock said 6.30. Now, back then, there was no cell phone for you to verify the time. You know what you did? You called the time and temperature. Anybody remember that? You would call the time and temperature. My mom is more brillianter than I am. She calls the time and temperature. And as she's listening, she just gives me the eye. I'm like, what? I didn't do anything. I took matters in my own hands. It didn't turn out so well for me. And that's what happens in life. And here's what we need to know. That just because God is silent doesn't mean he is still. Just because God is silent, we can't hear him, we, don't, we can't appear to see him, doesn't mean he's not up to something special. You know, in Galatians chapter 4, it says that at just the right time, in the fullness of time, God sent his son for us. Like, what was the right time? Why then? Man, man, this takes us to the next piece in our mosaic, which is actually world history. You know, at that particular time in world history, there was Rome had risen to power. And this is a history book that just represents Rome and all of Rome's power. Now, Rome was one of the, uh, one of the, Uh, governments that we actually look to for so many things is one of the empires that is considered one of the greatest empires in history, economically, educationally, engineering that we got, the arts that we got from them. But there's a couple of things specific to Rome that actually helped the, the church of God and God's message go forward. Number one was during the time of Rome was this thing called the peace of Rome. It was 200 years of pretty much tranquility and peace. And they had a common language called Koine Greek. So everyone in the empire could speak Greek, even if it wasn't their primary language, which the reason why Rome wanted to do that was obviously economic reasons. So for trade to be able to go all over the empire. And then also they had a common road system, 
Up until that point, roads were just kind of shoddy. And if you came to a, you know, a place where there was water or marsh, you weren't ever really able to get over it. And it was very dangerous to travel. And because Rome needed to manage its empire, they had a road system where they could use it to make, take troops wherever they needed to. It actually opened up trade throughout the entire Roman Empire so that when the time came, For the message of Jesus to move forward, God used history. God used a ruler named Caesar who thought he was pulling all the levers for what was happening when actually God was behind it all, orchestrating and moving and guiding and sending. So we have the peace of Rome. It's just extremely important as we look at what it means for this mosaic to be painted. But then after that happened... It's when God was ready to break his silence, man, he needed someone to come and say, hey, it's time. We needed, he needed someone to come and say, hey, pay attention to that. And that someone, that announcer that God picked was this guy named John the Baptist. Now, some of you Southern Baptists think that that's John the Southern Baptist, but it's not. This is John the Baptizer. And his symbol in the mosaic is a sandal. And I want to explain that to you. Now, John was actually a cousin of Jesus. And so in the prophecy, the promises, God said he'd send send somebody to run ahead, to run interference for Jesus. Much like you have someone gives a nomination speech when someone is nominated for president. Much like you have kind of an opening act at a concert. You know, if you've ever been to a talk show, like I've been to Letterman and went to this really classic one called uh, Kelly and Ryan. You've heard of that? It's pretty amazing. And so they have a, a comedian that opens up for you. Why? Get people laughing, help people know what to expect, tell them when to applause, tell them when to stand up, all the things, right? This was John's job. John's job was to look at Jesus and say, he's the guy. That's the one you've been looking for. Now, now Jesus said of John, he said this, those born among women, nobody's greater than John. That's a pretty high compliment. You have Jesus and you have John. But here's what John said about himself. He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He's, he's the one you've been looking for. And so John comes and John announces that Jesus is coming because the prophecies promised that the forerunner would come and show up. Now, now John's mom was pregnant at the same time that Mary was pregnant with Jesus, which leads us to the next piece of the mosaic, Mary and Joseph. I think we have some, we have some preconceived ideas about Mary that I want to debunk this afternoon. You know, Mary was, uh, we think of her and we just think of someone who's just kind of meek and mild and just kind of takes what comes her way and is so flexible and just rolls with the punches. But Mary... She was about 14 or 15 years old. How many of you have a 14 or 15-year-old right now? Don't raise your hand. Okay, you can. I'm just kidding because I'm going to make fun of them. No, I'm kidding. Um, We were all at least that age at one point. Just think about this for a minute. 14 or 15, going to have the Son of God as a child. Like like if that were me, I I, I couldn't even keep, I wouldn't be able to keep my cell phone screen from being cracked when I was 14 or 15. Yet here she is going to give birth to the Son of God. Now, now, Mary would have been a peasant girl who probably was illiterate. 
She would have been, you know, grabbing water from the well and carrying it, you know, miles to her home. She would have gathered wood to be able to burn in the house. Listen, Mary, Mary was rugged. Listen, Mary was a lot less like Cinderella and a lot more like Katniss Everdeen. Mary gets met by an angel who tells her the story. And most people in the Bible, when they meet angels, it's face first. They're scared to death. But Mary doesn't wilt. She doesn't waver. She doesn't panic. Also, Mary's job is to raise a child knowing she would watch him die. Like, what kind of strength would that take? So you have Mary, rugged, strong, faithful, believing. This is who Mary was. And of course, she married Joseph. And at the time, this time in the particular story, they're just engaged. They're not married yet. And so Joseph, can you imagine the conversation after Mary's pregnant? Like, how does that go down? When Mary's got to tell him, oh, I'm pregnant. And, and Joseph's like, I took ninth grade health. I know how that goes. They're just probably out at Applebee's on a date night, Bourbon Street steak with an Oreo shake, whipped cream on the top two, two straws, one check. Girl, I got you. And they both lean into that straw, that Oreo shake. And she tells them. Now, this speaks to Joseph's character because Joseph in that culture clearly could have dismissed her, could have made it public. He decides quietly that he's going to just put her away quietly until he's told by the Lord that, no, it's going to be okay. And Joseph, man of character and integrity, strength, faithfulness, would to God that we have more men like that. And Jesus is born in their family. Man, what did Jesus learn in that family? And what was it like to have two parents who were strong and loving and kind and faithful and humble? Man, this is, this is how Jesus grew up. This is who he was born to. Now, Mary's name literally means rebellion. If you look up Mary's name, Mary means rebellion. You see, Mary gave birth to a rebellion. A rebellion against this culture, a rebellion against Satan, a rebellion against sin, man, a rebellion against anything that would hold you back. See, when you lead a rebellion, your goal is to set people free, isn't it? And this is what Jesus came to do. And even though God flipped a script on Mary's life and she didn't get to say yes to the dress, Mary gave birth to a rebellion that we're all beneficiaries of. And so Mary... And Joseph. Now they find their way, as we know, to Bethlehem. And as tradition would have it, as the Bible would teach it, Bethlehem, there was a star placed over Bethlehem. And that's how the wise men found it that we'll talk about in just a second. Now Bethlehem was a very, very small outpost of the Roman government. Bethlehem did not have much claim to fame. Bethlehem was about 500 people. So when you hear there was no room at the inn, they didn't go to check in at the Marriott. What had happened was that Joseph was from the family of David. And it says in Luke chapter 2, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus 
that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. It was the first census taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone had to go to his hometown to register. So Joseph went up from Galilee, Nazareth. He went to Judea, to Bethlehem, the city of David, because he was of the house and the family of David. And he went there to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to be his wife and expecting a son. So he goes there to be counted because some wicked ruler off in Rome decided he needed to count people for the tax base so he could be sure that the Roman government coffers were full. So in this moment, when they're on their way to Bethlehem, Caesar thinks he's orchestrated it when in actuality, God is the one who's behind it all. And so they make their way to Bethlehem where Joseph would have known a few people. Because it was where his family was from, he would have been knocking on doors. And in that culture, hospitality was your claim to fame. And if you weren't able to provide hospitality, it actually brought shame on your family. And so Joseph goes and knocks on doors and nobody has room for him. I'm like, do you have family like that? They knock on it. Ah, it's awful. You can't come in. They wouldn't have done that because they didn't like him. They would have done that because there was no room in the guest room. So what do they do? They let him, ha- they let him hang out with the animals. So probably behind the little house that he went to, there was a cave dug into a hillside where the animals would have lived. So Mary and Joseph go back there. And while they're there, who knows how, many, how long it could have taken. You know, our preconceived idea is that, you know, she was pregnant on a donkey and then the next day she had the baby. Probably she'd been there a few months. She has a baby. She puts him in a manger. Now imagine you put your child in your dog food bowl. This is what she had. Why would God do that? Why Bethlehem? Why the promise of Bethlehem? Why a manger? Why in poverty? Because poverty's chaos. Just proves to all of us that God's approachable, that God's accessible, and God's available. Like what, whatever's happening in your world, like, like God's available. You know, and he may seem silent, and, he, and he's powerful enough to align all of these different mosaic pieces but it's personal enough to step into your life. That's why we have Bethlehem. Now, the first visitors that Mary and Joseph received were some shepherds. And you may have heard this part of the story that there were some shepherds there. And shepherds weren't at the top of everybody's invite list to the Christmas party. You know, the shepherds were poor. Um, They were illiterate. They would have been looked down on. Um, Nobody would have really appreciated their hard work. Um, they would have only been shepherds because they couldn't have gotten a different job. And so you have the shepherds and it says that in a field nearby, Mary and Joseph, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flock at night and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were terrified. So the angel said, don't be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lay in a manger. Now, two really important things about these shepherds. It's going to amaze you, promise me. The first thing is that they were keeping sheep in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is where they raised the sheep for the sacrifice in the temple. They had to raise them in a special way. They had to take special care of them. And they had to have special methods. And these sheep were to be the sacrifice that year in the sacrificial system. But remember who else was born in Bethlehem? Jesus, because he was the final sacrifice. 
He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So God had Jesus born in Bethlehem, and the first people he tells are shepherds who are raising the Passover lambs. Amazing. And the second reason that I think is really important is that Jesus called himself the great shepherd. He says, I'm the great shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. Think of how many voices we listen to. Whose voice are you listening to? Man, we have social media. It'll tell us a lot, won't it? It's really good for our soul. (laughs) Tell us how to dress, how to look, what to do, where to go, how to spend our money. There's politicians that we listen to. They're a voice in our mind telling us what side of the aisle we should be on, who we should cancel, who we should hate, who we should judge. That's a voice. There's the voice of our past. Hmm. That one's pretty loud, isn't it? That one just never seems to shut up. That one just seems to say the same things over and over and over and over again. But what if you listen to the voice of the shepherd, the one who came for us, the one who has a track record of being trustworthy, the one who always has good for us, the one who can change our soul, the one who said he'd never leave us or forsake us, the one who said, follow me. Like, what if we listened to that voice? And how would our 2022 be different? So you have the shepherds kind of as the very first guest that we see in the Bible. And the next one we see are the wise men. How many of you guys have an activity scene with the wise men in it? Handful? Nobody. Y'all need to get with it. (laughs) So you have the wise men in the nativity scene. And so the wise men are some interesting characters. Now, we like to think that there were three wise men, but more than likely there was about 30. But 30 would not fit across your mantle in the nativity scene. So the wise men, now this one is just going to blow your mind, so stick with me. About 540 years before Jesus was born, the nation of Israel was sent into exile. You guys know what exile is? Like exile is when you want to be at home and somebody comes and kicks you out of your home to a place you don't want to go. So it would be like the government coming in and says, you got to move to Alabama or South Carolina, right? We'd be like, no, no, no. They go into exile all over the Babylonian empire. And when they do, they take the promises of God with them written down in a scroll so that the people who lived in these places in Babylon would have picked up the scroll and read it. So 500 years later, the wise men pick up the scroll and they read about the promise of this coming Messiah, this coming king. And so when they do, they recognize that in the promises, it talks about some things happening in the heavens, some things happening with the stars. And so they begin to follow it. And so they show up in Jerusalem trying to find this king. And so they make their way to Jerusalem and they ask King Herod, who's going to, we're going to get to him in just a second. They ask him where the child was to be born. And then they end up in Bethlehem. Now they end up in Bethlehem two years later, two years later. So if you have your wise men, like right by the manger, you need to move them across the room because it's going to take a while. (laughs) Two years later. So follow me on this. There were some promises written 540 years before that ended up outside of Jerusalem because they went into exile. Those promises are read by some wise men who followed Jesus. And then two years later, they end up visiting Jesus in Bethlehem. Like this story is amazing. And if God 
can span half a millennia to lead wise men to Jesus, can't he direct us? Can't he get us where we need to go? Can't he help us with that next decision? Can't he help us with that next move, that next problem, that next conflict? Like, can't God guide us? Like, wouldn't this make 2022 different if we would just trust the God who got the wise men across half the, uh, half the world at that time, 2,000 miles? So the wise men, critical part of the story. Now, they brought gifts, as we all remember. We all know them. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. His name is gold. His name is frankincense. His name is myrrh. Now, gold was symbolic. God was communicating something in these gifts. You had gold, which would have been given to a king. So what God is communicating is that he has sent a king. He has sent royalty. That we have a king, and his name is Jesus. The next one is frankincense. Now, that would have been burned, right? It was incense that was burned, first flower children. Incense that was burned, and it was burned as a sacrifice to God. So that would have represented Jesus' deity. And then you have the myrrh. The myrrh was an embalming agent. And so myrrh would have represented Jesus' death or his humanity. And so we have all three of these coming together in this symbolism of who Jesus would be and the kind of king that he would be. The promises of God that prove trustworthy because he, he came true. Ah, But then we have Herod. Herod, now that's a character right there, right? Herod actually is the first Grinch who tried to steal Christmas. Now, Herod was the, he actually was called king of the Jews. He was given that title by the Roman government. Herod was not Jewish. Herod didn't like Jews. He actually hated Jews, but he was given this title king of the Jews. Now, Herod was extremely ruthless and extremely cruel. Herod was so afraid that someone was going to try to take over his crown, take over his authority, that he killed multiple people. He killed a couple of his sons. He killed one of his wives. Even on his deathbed, he had one of his son-in-laws killed, even to that point. So when the wise men come prancing into town, talking about where is he who was born king of the Jews, Herod's not interested in worship. Herod's interested in murder. So Herod tells the wise men, hey, you know, when you guys find him, hey, tell me because I want to worship. And it says they knew better. They knew that God was trying to trick him. So they leave and don't tell him. And Herod finds out about it. And because he's so ruthless, he realizes that it's been two years since the child was born. And because he didn't know exactly, he can't pinpoint the location of where Jesus is. He just wipes out every baby boy two years old and younger. Joseph and Mary and Joseph, they move to Egypt before this can happen, before Jesus can be killed. Thus, fulfilling the prophecy that the Lord had spoken in Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt I will call my son. So God had some promises made 540 years that the wise men actually read. And when they read them, they went to Jerusalem and they actually alerted Herod the king that Jesus was going to be born and Jesus ends up in Egypt. What he meant for evil, God meant for good. And in your life, what what Satan meant for evil, God will use for good. And there is nothing in your life that God won't redeem or restore in due time. 
And that's nothing, unequivocally nothing, unequivocally. No backing up, no backtracking. There's nothing that God won't make right. If God can do this, and he can restore what's been stolen from you, whether it's this year or next year or on into the future, and God can restore that. You know, the final piece that we have this afternoon, which I hate to get to because this has been so fun, is the family tree of Jesus. You know, Jesus has a very interesting family tree, and we know it's a little different because God is technically his father, and Joseph is technically kind of his stepdad. But we know that Jesus was, had a, a long lineage, and that from the very beginning of time, God was forming his family tree, that God was shaping it and moving it and preparing it. And in Matthew, Matthew goes through some of Jesus' family tree. And he begins to write with Adam. He starts with Adam. And then he moves his way all the way through from Adam down to Abraham to David. Then he goes on down to um, 14 generations. And then he goes to Mary and Joseph. And he has over 72 people listed here. And listen, here's the thing about names in the Bible. Man, is that when you gave someone a name, it meant something. You didn't just give them a name and hope they grew into it. You gave them a name that meant something. Like Joash, for instance, means the strong one. And so each name in, the, in this genealogy is very specific and very individual. And it tells us a lot about who Jesus came for. We know who Jesus came from, so we can know who Jesus came for. And we see kings listed in his genealogy. There are kings listed, royalty. And so, because Jesus came for those who are even royalty and rich. There, there are Gentiles mentioned, which just means those outside the promises of God. They're actually in the lineage of Jesus. So that tells us that Jesus came for those who feel like they're outside the family of God. Man, there, there are people that would be classified as sinners, murderers, adulterers. Man, they, they are outside because of their behavior and their sin. Jesus came for those. There's even four women listed in the genealogy. And up until Jesus' day, that would never have happened because women were treated as property. But even in, before Jesus is born, even in his genealogy, it elevates the value of women to their rightful place. And it actually humanizes women in that situation. And even some women who had, and had questionable pasts, but just tells us who God is for. Skipped nobody. And you may feel like God has skipped you. <laughs> You may feel like the promises are God for somebody else. I don't even know if I believe in God because of how my life has gone. I had plans, but they didn't work out. Man, I had hoped where I'd be at this point in life. We had hoped to be able to do these things and we're not able to. God has flipped the script. And what the genealogy, what the family tree tells us, God has not skipped you. Man, this is part of the beautiful mosaic that God is writing in your life. I hope you see the master artistry of God in this mosaic, how he has engineered space and time and geography and empires and the universe and people's lives so that the king could be born for you. You know, if we were to look at this and just see each individual element in this, it's pretty amazing, but, but it would be short-sighted if we just looked at the nativity scene is kind of, this is the, the mosaic of Christmas and we'll miss out on what exactly happened through all these mosaic pieces. 
Because you see, what actually happened is that Jesus came for us. That the light of the world, the king of the world, was born in a manger so that we would know he's approachable and accessible and available. That God engineered centuries and millennia and people, and it didn't happen on accident. It happened on purpose, and he promised that it would. And if God can do that, can't you trust him with your life? Man, how different would your 2022 be if you trusted God instead of you? Because nobody's let you down more than you have. Nobody's lied to you more than you. Nobody's failed you more than you. You know who's never lied to you or never failed you? The one who spans time and space, the King Jesus. Listen, I don't know why you came today. I'm glad you did. I hope you're glad you did. And I hope that you can see Christmas differently, not because you learned some facts about history, but because this is what happened undeniably. Let's pray together. God, is mind-boggling, all of the intricate details, all the things that you planned and promised, told us about, man, and how you came through on your promises. It just blows my mind. And God, there are times when it seems like you're silent, but Lord, help us to know in this moment, you're not, you're not standing still. You're not still. You're not unaware. You're not uncaring. But God, you're up to something. You're working something. You're moving. And God, as we just look back through history, how you have been in charge of everything and orchestrate everything. We just want to trust you with our future. God, I just pray for those in the room who, man, 2021 was just, was just brutal, God. They lost. They lost. And it doesn't feel like they're ever going to get it back. And so, God, I pray today would just be a day you breathe some life into them, some light into their heart, God. Lord, as we look to a new year and with all of the competing voices going on in our culture and all the things that we listen to, that we'd listen to you first, that we'd read your word first, that we'd pay attention to you first. And we'd just be reminded of this day when we, when we learned and were reminded and convicted, man, that you, you are trustworthy. You've never let us down, that you are the light of the world that's coming to the darkness. And I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one final one final promise that God gave in Isaiah chapter 9. He said this. He says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. 